Well, if you don't know this, um, pastors and church leaders all over the country usually look forward to the first Sunday after Labor Day, maybe more than any other Sunday on the calendar. And the reason for that is because um, this is really the time you've taken your last trip of the summer. Um, you know, baseball hasn't started yet. Fall ball, uh, football might be on the horizon. Um, but nonetheless, like this is really most people's first jump back into church, into a gathering um, for the fall semester. This is kind of when they're starting to kind of go, okay, we're going to rededicate our, ourselves to some healthy practices and rhythms. And of course, as Christians, we believe that the, that the gathering of the saints is a part of those healthy practices and rhythms. And so if you're here for the first time, we welcome you. If you're here online, uh, we welcome you. We're glad that you're doing either. Um, and yet we are purposed today to do something different in our church, and yet it's, it's all the same as what we've been doing all along. Um, back, So we started this church in 2014 in our living room with 17 adults and 19 kids. We've always been outnumbered with kids, so if that's... If that's not, that's not your jam, like that's this is not your place. I don't know what to tell you. Like we've always had more, a lot of kids in this place. And so um, as we did that, like it was good and it was right. And, and we we've are all seeing the fruit of that as we continue to, to really remain faithful to God's call to start a new church. And as we did that, um, come 2015 and 2016, we started what was called a vision team. And in that vision team, there's about 10 of us in a living room. And what we would ask is a question like this. Um, we, were, we were guided, and so one of the questions that we asked under this guidance was, um, what sets your church apart from 10,000 other churches? That's not a bad question, right? What sets your church apart uh, over 10,000 other churches? Not a bad question. Um, we, we went by that question, and we came up with our values that we've been holding fast to for really the last six years, and there have been good values um, and, and yet, as before I went away for sabbatical this summer, we reconstituted a new vision team, and we asked a different question. We didn't ask what's going to make us different than other churches. We instead asked the question, what makes us the same as the church? What makes us the same as the church that's been thriving for 2,000 years? And so you might ask yourself, like, why that question? And really, the, 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 the root of it is, if you don't know this, the church was birthed in a very pluralistic society. When you start thinking about a plurist, pluralistic society, it's one where there were all kinds of people serve, serving and worshiping all kinds of gods, doing all sorts of things in order to worship those gods, and yet the church was started in the midst of that society, and no matter what kind of confusion came, no matter what kind of persecution came, no matter what happened for that church, for the bride of Christ, it absolutely thrived through thick and thin. And so I want to know what kind of church will thrive in this new pluralistic society where terms are more confusing than ever. And you might think, well, what do you mean? When I say the word Christian, we will not have a good understanding of what that means in this room, much less outside of this room. Okay, so the idea of being a Christian, even that is muddied. Even that is difficult to understand. And why is that? Because we've probably... We've outsourced that term to what other people might think it need to be, or evangelical Christian, especially in this day and age. There are all sorts of views, all sorts of gods that we're serving, and it may not even be Jesus, even underneath the heading of Christian. We are, again, in a pluralistic society, and so I wonder what kind of church would thrive 
What kind of church would thrive in a society that's so mixed up we can't figure out right from wrong? Much less what resurrected people look like. And what a resurrected Savior might say or do or invite us into. See, what made that church so resilient is what we just read in Acts chapter 2. What made that church so resilient, and I do pray for you on a regular basis, that you wouldn't just be an affirming believer of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I've said to others recently, I'm actually tired of saying the word believer. Are you a believer? Because again, in a pluralistic society, what we mean is we affirm Jesus with the historical figure. And so therefore, yes, I believe in him. So the, the better language that I've been using lately is, do you follow Jesus? Are you a follower of him? Because now all of a sudden, we've got to put some feet to that belief. And so the same thing that I truly believe, as Jesus said, follow me, is the same invitation for all of us. In 2021, as COVID continues to kind of ravage not just this church, but our area and this country and the world, we have a new opportunity before us. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of a people are we going to be? Don't just think church as an organization. Think of you. Think of you have responsibility in this. Think of me. We all have a part to play in this future that God has already written, and yet we have the privilege to walk into faithfully. So I just wonder what could happen if we devoted ourselves to the same things that the early church did, and that's certainly what our new vision team started to come up with. Like It just kept going back to some of the biblical principles that we saw in the scriptures again and again. So as, the, as I went away, I didn't think about this much, but as I returned, I thought, okay, I think the elders and I need to just kind of settle in on what these things truly mean for us. Because truly we wonder what could happen if we devoted ourselves to the same things they did. What if we did so in the face of adversity? What if we did so through probably more distraction than any Christian has maybe ever known in this day and age? You see, no church will ever be who God has called her to be without being devoted to the kind of things that the scriptures model out for us to be devoted to. So we're not talking about family values today. We are talking about family devotions. What does it look like to be devoted? What does it look like to be devoted to Jesus amidst distraction and adversity? I wonder whose life could change. I wonder whose legacy and heritage would change for all eternity. I wonder how we, you, could change this city. I wonder how you could change this county. I wonder how you could participate with what God is already doing to renew all things. And when I wonder these things, I call us back to the scriptures that we would be devoted and so, friends, if you want to know what our family devotions are, we want to use biblical language. We don't want to go off script. Instead, we want to stay on script to be faithful. So we think about the devotions that we're going to put before you over the next five weeks. They're right here in the scripture. There's really no surprise except maybe the last one. The first one is apostles' teachings, which we're going to talk about today. The next one is the fellowship next week. The breaking of bread the following week. The prayers after that. And then, of course, if you look at this scripture carefully, be, before it and after it, you see the church exploding in growth. So This wasn't just an, a club for Christians. This was a movement of missionaries. And so that we would be devoted to missional living at the end of all this. This word devoted has, um, well, let me just define it for us, right? 
It means to attach oneself to something, to persevere in something, to hold fast to something. Again, no church will ever be what what, we, what God has called us to be without this kind of devotion, without this perseverance, without this steadfastness, that we may be someone who is clearly admired for being nice and being moral, but we will never be the kind of people that are known for having resurrection blood throwing through, flowing through our veins without this sort of devotion. Steadfastness, perseverance, pushing past our feelings of not feeling like reading the Bible of not feeling like praying, of not feeling like being a part of community. Look, I know there are obstacles before all those things in this day and age, but what if we picked up the scriptures before we picked up our screens? What if we pursued another's good before what was good for ourselves? These are the things that Christians have always done. We've got to hold fast, persevere, stand together in these things, pushing past the things that are warring against our souls. And we do so with the trust that God is doing something beneath the surface, beyond what we can see, in the ground, like a seed, like a farmer would put their seed in the ground, and all of a sudden they know God is going to do something miraculous beyond what they can see. That's the kind of work that Christians do, the kind of work that we cannot see but instead is operating on the basis of faith. And when we do that, this devotion means that no obstacle can keep us from holding fast like this. So if we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, I think first and foremost, it means that we understand that the early church was so devoted to the apostles' teaching that instruction was vital in the local church. You think about like when you're looking at churches, right? Maybe you, some of you are today going, man, what, like, I just want to find a new church for our home, for, for our family. Um, is the first thing you're thinking about, are they devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are they, are they devoted to instructing us on what God says life should be about and who God is? Or are we devoting ourselves to lesser things? What are we devoted to? You see, the apostles, that's the original 12, which included Judas, oddly enough. That's good news for you and me. That God would invite that guy to follow Jesus for three years. The apostles, plus Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, plus a, plus a guy named Paul, who murdered Christians. Yes, these characters are the ones that say, that Jesus says, has the authority. Those are the ones that they have the authority. They, they, they have the ability to teach us in ways that I could never teach you. They had the authority, and so that means that we... We have some authority, but not like them. Not like those guys had. Those 14 total people had the authority to write on God's behalf. Now that, I don't know what your Facebook posts are this week, but they're not on God's behalf. I know that you might think they are, but they're not on God's behalf. These guys wrote on God's behalf as men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And they created the canon of scripture, which is our final authority and all of faith in life. So these are probably some, some familiar thoughts if you've been a part of this church. But I don't want to blow past them because they're familiar. Instead, I want to remind you of these good and right things. So if you, if you flip a little bit further into the New Testament, you find a passage called 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And it tells you the importance of this word, of, of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's sourced in him. It came from him. 
So is this contradictory? Not unless you think God is contradictory. Is this going to lead you down paths that are dangerous for you? Not if you think God leads you down paths that are dangerous for you. Even though it might mean my own death. Yeah, yeah, even if it means your own death. Because that's not your ultimate danger. Your ultimate danger isn't losing your physical life. Your ultimate danger is apostating against King Jesus and not believing in him. Remember, we go back to the unforgivable sin of attributing God's work to Satan. It's disbelief. So even if it means our physical death, yeah, we follow Jesus because he is our master. And no student is above his master. So the Bible continues to say this, all scripture breathed out by God, profitable. This is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Just look at the purposes of scripture. It's to reproof. It's to teach. It's to correct. It's to train you. When we say we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, what it also means is that we're devoting ourselves to being learners. You look at what a disciple truly is, it really just means a learner, an apprentice of someone else. Like you know Jesus was a carpenter. And I don't know how long it took him to apprentice under Joseph to be a carpenter, but I'll bet you it was some years. And I'll bet you if you wanted some work done on your house, um, you probably wouldn't call like the newest business in town to come and do some finishing carpentry work on your cabinets in your kitchen. Why would you not call the newest business in town? Because they haven't apprenticed for long enough. You know that plumbers take, like, I have it written down just because I knew I was going to forget. Two years. Plumbers apprentice for two years before they can send out on their own. HVAC, four to five years. Electricians, four to five years. Counselors, three to five years. There's an apprenticeship for all these professionals that we would count on to do all sorts of things in our lives And I wonder what the world is counting on that yet we have not apprenticed under Jesus to be able to help them for. We are called to be lifelong learners, apprentices of King Jesus, and yet we do not devote ourselves to this kind of life. There's three enemies that come against our devotion to the apostles' teaching. The first one is distraction. Anybody else? Just me, I'll hold my hand up for being distracted. Yeah, amen. Jenny knows, she's like, I'm in. I'm in on the distracted game. Everybody else is lying. Me and Jenny, we're the only truth tellers in here. Right? Distraction. There are a million things to do, but only one worthy of this kind of perseverant, steadfast attaching yourself to something. Do you attach yourself to your screen, to Instagram, to Facebook, to Twitter, to whatever social media outlet that you have, I would say we probably do. I know I do way more than I ever want to. Well, why? We know that's waging war against our soul, and yet we do it anyways. We're distracted. And I just want to know, like, who do you want to become coming out of COVID? Who do you want to be? And then what are you willing to do to get there? It's going to take devotion It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take holding fast to Jesus beyond what we feel or desire in any given moment and continue to pursue him, that we would not be distracted. That's enemy number one. Enemy number two is that that's good enough. Yesterday I went to Galveston um, for my mom's birthday. 
And we were down there, and my kids jumped in the water, and I jumped in. I had my boogie board. I was ready to go catch some waves. And then I remember when I was in there, this is Galveston. There's no waves. I sadly walked back to the beach, itchy from too much salt, and put my thing back down and sat down and moped. Because for a, a brief moment, see, this is the thing. Everybody that grew up in Houston area loves Galveston. Okay, I grew up in Houston, and I went to Galveston a lot. I still have yet to love it, but I'm, I'm working on it. The reason why we love it is because it's easily accessible. It's our beach. It's just right here. But is that the one that you think of when someone goes, what's your favorite beach? If that's a strong no. <laughs> that's a strong no, y'all. That's not anybody's favorite beach. But it's, the, it's ours. It's good enough. I can get there and back on a day, like, easy with three kids. But it ain't California. It ain't Florida. Sure ain't Bali. I've never been there. Sure ain't Antigua. I've never been there. I just see it on the Wheel of Fortune. I go, oh, I'd like to go on Wheel of Fortune now. This is, this is how you know I'm old, just so you know. I watch Wheel of Fortune. I, here's the deal. What you don't know, I rearrange dinner time around Wheel of Fortune, all right? I am devoted to Wheel of Fortune. Pat Sajak, Vanna White, going to bring me in. That is not in my notes, oddly enough. Look, good enough is Galveston when God has for us some unbelievable beach to live in. To, to, to be devoted, and yes, it's going to take sacrifice. Yes, it's going to take more planning. It's not going to be the easiest thing to access on any given day, but we've got to be devoted if we want to get there. Devotion. This is not good enough. Like being satisfied with the shallow end of the pool provides you with some relief from the summer sun, but it, how much more satisfying is being able to swim in the deep end? Let me settling for good enough. The last one. This enemy of this, our devotion and our devotion to the apostles' teaching is arrogance. Friends, we think we know more than we do because we saw it come along our scrolling habits. We go, oh, I affirm that. Do we know the context? Do we know why God originally wrote that? Do we understand what God is calling us to do and how he's wanting us to live as a result of whatever truth that we just saw? Or we just go, man, I just, yeah, let me like that, mm, share that, let me copy and paste that. We think we know more than we do, but God is calling us into a posture of humble curiosity to wonder, to wonder what we don't know about God himself. You see, being devoted to the apostles' teaching means what we must learn what they taught. And what is it that the apostles taught? Well, you can talk about all kinds of things. You can talk about baptism, you can talk about the Lord's Supper, you can talk about laying on the hands, you can talk about fasting, prayer. You can talk about all kinds of things, but if you boil it down to one thing, they were obsessed with the gospel. They were absolutely obsessed with it. And so 73 times in the New Testament is this word gospel used, and countless more where the word gospel is never used, and it's just explained. 73 times in the New Testament is the word gospel used. I'm going to throw a few out, not all 73, but a few. Acts 15, when Peter says that he is devoted to the Gentiles. And I want you to see this. This is a racially motivated devotion. He is a Jewish man. God has called him to go be with Gentiles. And if you read the book of Galatians at any time, he failed at this. Paul called him out for being a racist when he pulled back from the Gentiles. And he said, Paul says he confronted him. Yet 
my man Peter is devoted to the Gentiles beyond failure, beyond the level of comfort, to the point it says this in Acts 15, that my mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles, those that are different race than me, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Praise God. You're a Gentile in here, most likely. Praise God that Peter was devoted to making sure the Gentiles heard the gospel. Acts 20, as Paul was getting on a boat, and he was headed to Jerusalem. He knew that that would be the beginning of the end of his life. Why would he still get on the boat? Why would he still go knowing he was going to be bound? The Holy Spirit had already warned him, you will be bound. Why would he still get on that boat? Well, the Bible says this, Oh, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of of God. What is your ministry? What is your lifelong purpose and ministry? What is ours that we may testify to the good news, to the gospel of the grace of God? Why would you keep going unto death? Because something more important is at stake. Galatians 1 says that this gospel is not man's gospel. Romans 1:16 says it instead it is the power the power of God unto salvation. They were obsessed with the gospel because that's the thing that Jesus was obsessed with. When he started his ministry and John the Baptist was arrested, uh, Mark 1 says that he came and what did he do? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what's the gospel? Simply put, it's good news. In the context of, of, of biblical writing, what they would do is that kings would go off to war, right? And they would go away from whatever, whatever kingdom they were at. Hopefully it wasn't at their kingdom, but they would go off to war. They would defend an ally. They would go take over a country or whatever it may be. And while the king and while all of the army was off fighting the war, the people at home were wondering, how's the war going? And they couldn't turn on the news. And so they would send a messenger from the front lines. And that messenger would run all the way back to the kingdom. And there would be a watchman on the wall. And they would wonder, who is that messenger? And that messenger would come breaking forth through the city gates, almost like heaving from being exhausted. And what would they do? They would say either good news or bad news. The good news is, the gospel is that the king has overcome your enemy. That's the good news, that the messenger, John the Baptist, came before Jesus, the ultimate messenger, to be able to tell us the king has come. His kingdom is coming to earth, and he has won, and he has eradicated our final enemy forever and ever. Praise God. He has come. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you needed scripture around that, there is one really beautiful scripture, Romans 5, 8. If you want to just put it really simple. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You weren't, you weren't righteous. You weren't kind of good. You weren't 1% good and 99% bad. You also weren't 99% good and 1% bad. Sinners, runners, wanderers, rebels, murderers, thieves, adulterers, homosexuals, swindlers, greedy. You name it, whatever your story was before the gospel, the gospel came in, Jesus came in, and now you know it if you've met him, he's the center of your life. 
you know there's a beginning or a before Jesus, and you know there's an after Jesus. That's how you know the gospel is the center of your life. Like, there's a season, even if you don't know the day, even if you don't know the time, there's a season in your life where you go, man, I don't know, before I realized who Jesus was, before Jesus just invaded me wholly, there was a before him, and now there's an after him. That's gospel centrality lived out. That's the gospel being at the middle and the center of our lives. They were absolutely obsessed with the good news. We have a quote that we, we, we share often. We start thinking about the gospel. Josue's favorite quote from Jonathan Dodson and Brad Watson. And this is what they say the gospel is. If you need a literary quote, not just a biblical quote, this is what they say. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and evil through his own death and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. We're included in the all things new and that he will continuously make us new. Praise God for that. You see, they were obsessed with the gospel. And you have to ask yourself, why are they so obsessed with it? Because the only thing that can change us. You see, the gospel is absolutely at the center of all the apostles' teaching. And I pray it's at the center of not just the apostles' teaching, but our lives. The life of a church, the gospel being the center, what could change us more than that? How would it change us if we put it at the center of our lives? And what does it mean to do that? Well, one last passage before we go. It's 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, which is really all about the resurrection. But before he gets to the resurrection, he says this about the gospel in 1 through 5. Look what Paul says about the gospel and how, how primary its importance truly is. Look, now I would remind you, brothers, now look right here, don't ever get past the gospel. You can't ever graduate from it. Paul the apostle thought one of the best things to make sure that we were reminded of as Christians, brothers, sisters, is the gospel. Don't ever move past the good news of Jesus and you know you have when you kind of got bored of it. Anybody else felt bored about the good news of, you know, God the Son leaving heaven to die for sinners? I have this week. I did a, a, a fresh, you know, brush through all this values and devotions. I told Melissa, I was like, man, I shouldn't be, like, bored. What's wrong with my heart? I got to repent. Something's off within me. The king of the universe came and saved me. And brought me into a relationship with him in ways that I never deserved or ever would have imagined happening. The gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The good news that our king has won. The messenger has been brought to our city gates. And he's told us the good news that the king has won. That he preached to you, he says. Which you received and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, the gospel, what I also received. What's the gospel? Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. All a big part of a plan. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. The resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what did he do? He appeared to Cephas 
and then to the 12, and then if we kept reading, he would appear to over 500 more people. Resurrection is real. So let me just take a few ways that this apostle's teaching can be summarized as gospel centrality for our lives. Number one, it is primary. It is of primary importance. You want to know why we do what we do as far as our gatherings are concerned? You want to know why we invite you into growth groups like those smaller gatherings of three or four where you can confess and repent and believe in the good news? Like from big gatherings to the smallest gatherings that we may offer, neighborhood groups being in between all of that, where we could just go and find a safe place to be a sinner, all kinds of messed up and yet redeemed by the grace of God. You want to know why we do all these things? It's because of the gospel. It's of primary importance. So you may wonder, like, why do we do what we do in here? We come, and we are centered around the gospel. Isaiah 6 is this great model for a gathering, and we followed it for several different years now. It's when Isaiah goes into the temple of God, and he sees the glory of God. And, and, the, and the temple is filled up with, with, with his robe, right? And he sees it, and he's ruined by it. And yet there's angels all around, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah do? But he goes, oh, I'm going to die. When's the last time you came into a gathering and you felt the holiness of God, and you thought, God could kill me right now and be totally justified? And yet, God doesn't kill Isaiah. He sends an angel, and he touches his tongue, and he cleanses him from iniquity. That's good news. And then he says, all right got a mission on the earth. Who will go for us? And what does Isaiah do? Here am I. Send me. I'll go. See, that model right there is why we come into a gathering space and we sing. But before we do, we have a call to worship. We want to see him for his holiness. We want to look up just as Adam was talking about, right? We want to sing of his beauty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when we see him, we should be ruined by the amount of sin that we have accumulated even this morning, much less in the last week. But God doesn't ruin us. He assures us of the pardon that's found in his son Jesus. We have a call to worship. We sing. We have confession. We have, we have assurance of pardon. And then we pass the peace to one another. Oh, there would be peace amongst us. We do announcements. That's not part of Isaiah 6. And then what do we do? We center ourselves around, around God's word. And right before we, we, we get sent out of here like missionaries, we remember communion. We remember what God has done for us again and again. But it's as if every week I want to go, now who will go for us? Who will go for the king into your neighborhoods, into your networks, and into the nations with the power of the gospel, the, God, the power of salvation? Who will go? And I pray that we would be a people. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. I don't want my neighbors to go to hell. I don't, want my, I don't want my sister or my brother, I don't want anybody else to go to hell. So I don't care if they reject me. What I care about is that they reject Jesus. And if they do, then let them reject a clear representative of Jesus and not some meddler in the world and whatever this is on a Sunday morning. Let's go. Let's go. So yes, it's primary because here's the deal. It's the only thing that gives us the power for all of life. You see, we think the gospel is the door. If, if, you, if you had a door, you know why we don't have a door in here? Because it would be preposterous. 
Why isn't there a door set up in here? Because it doesn't lead from one place to the next. And we treat the gospel like it's a door in the middle of a room. When it's actually a door to something else. It's a whole new reality outside that door right there. And outside that door right there. The door is the entrance. It is the gospel with which we walk through. But it's also the, the, the house with, in which we live. That's what it says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. This is what you receive. This is what, where you stand. Sorry, it's in verse 1. It's the place that you stand. It's the place that you live. It's not just the doorway. It's the place which you are being saved. It's the whole house. So let's live in it. Let's make our home there. Let's make our home in the place of grace, where grace abounds, where mercy fuels humility and compassion, <laughs> where the love of Jesus for sinners can never be plumbed to its death, depth or measured in its width. Let us not simply walk through a doorway into the same room, having gone, well, yeah, I'm a believer. I mean, I walked through a door one day. Okay, but what does your life look like? Is it any different? Are you in any new place? Anything that's different or special about this new reality that God inviting you in, invited you into? No, instead, may we feel the warmth emanating from God himself. May we smell the bread of life which is cooking in the kitchen for us. May we taste and see that the Lord is good by the vats of God's grace that are prepared for us at his table. May we find our place in God's family. May we sit down at his table, not working, not like Martha, but like Mary, just ready to worship King Jesus because he came near to a sinner like you and me. Oh, may we be so moved by this reality. Because when we can be removed by this reality, I don't know if y'all have seen The Chosen, the second season, if you haven't. Like, I can't keep trying to say spoiler alert, because I talk about The Chosen a lot. So y'all need to just go watch it and be done with it, okay? But spoiler alert, Mary Magdalene goes and does something crazy, and then comes back and is like super ashamed. Have you seen this? If you haven't seen this, oh, spoiler alert. Plug your ears. And what does Jesus say to her in The Chosen? Which is a great, great posture for us to understand what Jesus is saying to us. Mary. I can't do his accent, but I wish I could. Did you think you would not sin any longer? It's an invitation for us to realize we're still, we still sin. We still struggle. We still wander. We still run. We still know the way that Jesus wants us to do. And we go, hey, I don't really want to do that today, Jesus. I'm going to go run the other way. It's more fun. And I get my kicks. And it's immediate. And I can get done with it and be like, all right, that was terrible. Lord, please forgive me. No, no, let us not take advantage of the kind of grace that God has poured out in his son, Jesus. Let us be a people that understand we don't have to sin anymore. Let us be a people that have been freed up from the power of sin because of the gospel, which is the power of salvation. Let us remember that whatever is whispering to you late at night or when no one else is around in the middle of the afternoon or whatever it is, let us understand we don't have to obey that voice. The power of the gospel has set you free from your old master of the devil. And let's be real, it's the devil. But instead, your new master, Jesus, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, beckons you into a new life and a new reality where we did not get to live before. 
It's in this new house where Satan has, has no room. It continues to be pushed out. And yet we leave the house, don't we? Ooh, I'd like to leave the house and go chase after my old friend. Pornography, alcohol, drugs, overworking, sports. It can be all the things. When God says that he, we, we should have no other gods before him, it doesn't have to be sin. It could just be busyness. Corey Ten Boom once famously said, if the devil cannot make you bad, he will make you busy. In this day and age of distraction and all the really good things that we could be devoted to, oh, God is calling us to something far greater. It is purpose. It is primary. It is the power to say no to sin. And it, the gospel provides the purpose for all of life. Did you see that right there at the end of verse 2b in 1 Corinthians? He says this, If you fold, hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Worthless. It's like, it's like a vapor. It's empty. There's no purpose in the kind of belief if we don't hold fast to the gospel of the center of our lives that we remember and we wake up every day. We remember, man, I am no longer a sinner, but I still want to sin. I am a saint now. God has remade me, but I still want to do that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I want to confess to you that I still want to do these things. Forgive me of these things and make me new. Take it away. Help me be busy in holy things today, pursuing you, the purpose for all of life. So I just want to ask you with this little vision question, right? Can you imagine your life in 5, 10, 20 years, how being devoted, how devoting yourselves, because remember back in Acts 2 it says, and they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Could you imagine what kind of a life you would be living if you devoted yourselves to this kind of gospel central teaching. Gospel centered teaching. What would it do for your kids? I don't know about you, but I think about generational curses in my family. Um, and not necessarily like all these are in my family, but like I think about our families. I think of the generational curses that could be broken by living gospel-centered lives. The generational curses of adultery, of pornography, of manipulation, of anger, of whatever vice that we grew up with. And we don't want to repeat as an adult, but we, we repeat as an adult. We live in a family and we go, I'll never be that. And you have kids of your own and you're like, dang it, I think I'm that. That's a generational curse that God wants to break off of us if by the power of the gospel. And how would your life change? How could your kid's life change? How could your neighbor's life change? It gives us a new purpose. I don't know what your purpose is when you walk out of here, but if you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, it is no longer to go make as much money and no matter what cost that you had. If you're an entrepreneur or a business person, it's no longer to go live as comfortably as you can. It's no longer to be as popular as you can be. No, Jesus came to rescue us from the small living of money and success and popularity and comfort. And so, friends, we repent. We repent when we give in to these kinds of lies. We repent and we believe in the good news that our King has defeated our enemy and brought us into a family which we did not earn and instead says, come. 
When we fail in our marriage, we agree with God about our sin. That's confession. We repent of that sin. We change and we believe in the gospel, which is faith in the gospel that God loves sinners. When we fail and we sin at work, when we wound our children though moment, through momentary lapses of judgment, when we sin against neighbors by simply not caring, by not engaging them and remaining to ourselves while they live really good lives but yet are headed to hell. We repent. We believe in the good news that we were that neighbor until someone came to us. We were that Gentile who had no hope in the world until Peter remained faithful unto death to preach the good news to the Gentiles. We were that wanderer. We were the person that wanted all people that tell the truth just go away until Paul became so faithful even unto death to make sure that all the earth could have a written record of God and what he's done for sinners. No, God has set us free to live resurrected lives free from the power of the grave. Free from the power of sin. Free from addictions and faulty reasoning which tells us that God will forgive us anyways. So we might as well. Or that God will never forgive us. So we might as well. Oh, that we would be a people who are devoted. Will you be devoted? We'd be casually affirming. Will you be sold out? Will you be steadfast? Will you hold fast to the apostles' teaching on the gospel? We'll just be casual observers, in and out, wondering what's lunch, when's lunch, what are we going to do, is Torchy's open, I don't know, I know Chick-fil-A's not. Or are we going to be devoted to the kind of teaching which shapes generations, which has changed the world, which I wonder what Fort Bend County would look like if a little bitty, little bitty, little movement called the Grove Church started. If we went to our neighbors' networks and nations with the good news, saying, you don't have to sin anymore. And yes, I still believe there are sins. You don't have to sin anymore. No, God set you free from that. Let me invite you into the kingdom where Jesus reigns and rules and wants to reign and rule over you to invite you into life. And what would it look like if we lived devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, let's ask the Lord. Let's see if he'll do these things amongst us, for us, and through us. Our Father in heaven, thank God you didn't just stay there. But that you sent your son Jesus. That through his life, death, and resurrection would defeat evil, sin, and death. And you will, you've promised to make all things new, and you're making new even us today. Thank you for coming and saving sinners, of which we are the worst. It gives us the freedom to just say, you know what, I don't have it all together, but Jesus does. I don't have all the answers, but Jesus does. I don't have the path of life, but Jesus does. I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. Oh, that we may be so dependent upon you so dependent upon your teaching, the apostles' teaching about you, Lord, that we would be ruined for anything else. I pray, Lord, that you get a hold of us. I pray that you convict our hearts. I pray that you bring us close. We honor you, Lord, with our lives. And that would not just be an honoring for honoring's sake, but, but because we just love you. Because we understand what you've done in order for us to love you. We know that you have loved us first. 
So, Lord, as we um, wrap up this section of our gathering, Lord, just renew us. Renew our hearts. Remind us, encourage us of the good news that you loved us. When we were at our worst, you came for us. You called our names. And you gave us a seat at the table, your table. Remind us of this good news in Jesus' name.